If you're intending to see the Martin Scorsese film Silence and you haven't done so, spoiler alert, um, I'm going to give away a little bit of the movie this morning. How many, just by by way of raising your hands, have seen it? I'm curious. Wow, hardly any of us. Hmm. The movie is based on a novel written by Japanese Christian author Shusako Endo by the same title. It details the story of two Portuguese priests who traveled to 17th century Japan in order to investigate if the rumors are true. The rumors that their spiritual mentor and best friend in the world, Father, Father Ferreira, uh, has, if he has indeed apostatized from the Christian faith and renounced Jesus Christ. I didn't realize this. I think few people do. But 17th century Japan, I mean, by the beginning of the 17th century, there were more than 100,000 Christians living in Japan at that time, which is more Christians than there are in Japan today. But it was during, if I'm getting this right, Shelton, the the Tokugawa shogunate that the uh, imperial government of Japan was very concerned about Western the encroachment of Western ideas into their country through trade, European traders coming. And effectively, the shogunate decided to expel every single foreigner that was in Japan at the time, Western, Chinese, African, everybody. Japan, between the years 1640 and 1853, 213 years was completely closed off to the rest of the world. And it was during this time that a very intense persecution of Japanese Christians began to to commence. At the center of the persecution and at the center of the movie are these icons of Jesus Christ called Fume, or Fumai, Fumi. Yeah, my Japanese is not very good. (laughs) Pictures of Jesus... And what, they, what the Japanese officials would do is that they would start torturing the Christians and they would say, all you need to do is take your bare foot and, and stamp on, trample upon the fumi, the, faith, the face of Jesus Christ. And that was understood as a way for you to renounce, to renounce your faith. You know, what's the big deal about stepping on a picture? Well, these are Christians who venerate the icon of Jesus. So to stamp on, their, on Jesus' face with their bare foot was, was the ultimate sacrilege possible. The drama of the story surrounds uh, mostly uh, three groups of characters, or, or three characters. The first character is a weak Christian. I've forgotten his name, but um, I wouldn't have been able to pronounce it anyways. A, a weak Christian who he's captured by the Japanese officials, and he immediately apostatizes. He stamps on the fumi. And he comes back to the church a little later on. He's, he's weeping. Oh, I'm so sorry for it. Please receive me back in. Forgive me. The church receives him back in. He's ca- captured a second time. And again, he immediately apostatizes. Three times he tramples upon the fumi just to save his hide. That is in very stark contrast to these other Christians who get, and the movie is full of torture scenes that, that, are, that make your skin crawl who are tortured in the most gruesome ways humanly conceived of, and yet they refuse, they refuse 
to de- deny their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then the third category of person, the third is, is Father Rodriguez, one of the two Portuguese priests who, who went originally there. They don't torture the, the fathers. They, they hold the fathers in some esteem. And they realize that if, if they can get one of the fathers to apostatize, then that's really the way you can exterminate Christianity from Japan. Because the fathers are basically idolized by the Japanese Christians. The most climactic scene of the movie is near the end where Father Rodriguez hears moaning outside of his cage all through the night. And he thinks that it's an animal out there, but it turns out to be three Japanese Christians who have been suspended upside down, their legs tied up, strung up, uh, suspended over a pit of feces. They're there to die. And during the interrogation scene, they say to Father Rodriguez, if you will only step on the Fumi, they will go free. They're moaning in agony, uh, two men and one woman. If you will just trample, they will go free. And the question is, will he? Should he? Today's passage, Hebrews chapter 6, is one of the most controversial in all the Bible. Those of you who are students of the Bible, you know, you can get into all kinds of uh, thoroughgoing debates and circular arguments based on Hebrews 6. And the reason is because it it leads to a lot of questions that we have. Um, Questions have been debated for 2,000 years now. For instance, the question, can a Christian, can a true Christian lose their salvation? Can someone who apostatizes from the faith, were they saved and can they lose that? Can they ever return? Can they ever repent and come back and say, I'm sorry and be saved? And are there certain sins which are truly, truly unpardonable before the face of God? Now, obviously, most of us don't know probably anybody on a, on a personal basis who was threatened with torture or death uh, by virtue of their Christianity. But we have known a lot of people, haven't we, who have walked away. We've known many people who, for whatever reason, have slowly, progressively, and finally, like seemingly finally, have walked away and renounced their faith in Jesus Christ. Some of those people are our own sons and daughters. What about them? Have they committed the unpardonable sin? There's plenty of us, there's plenty for us to consider as we read beginning in chapter 5, verse 11. We have much to say about this. And the this here is referring to Jesus' high priesthood, which gets uh, taken back up in chapter 7. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you're no longer, you no longer try to understand. In fact, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food, which is what he wants to feed them, solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. The writer is addressing one group of Christians in the church who he thinks are immature and lazy. 
They are the kinds of Christians who would look at the question we asked at the beginning of Psalm 119 earlier in our service, why am I not like the psalmist? Why am I not growing spiritually? Uh, these are Christians who, who shrug their shoulders and say, oh, well, who cares? You get the sense that the author is very frustrated with them. He almost shames them in these few verses. He's, they've grown complacent, and he's very concerned about their lack of zeal and commitment to grow. He says, I would like to teach you the deeper truths of our faith, but you're still sucking the bottle. I want to go on beyond the elementary truths. And he then in verses 1 through 3 explains what those elementary truths are. Let's read there. 6.1. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taking for, taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance. That's the first one. Repentance from acts that lead to death and faith, faith in God. Instructions about the word here is literally the word baptismos, baptisms. And I think that's what he's talking about. Repentance, faith, baptisms, that's usually the order it goes in. (laughs) The laying on of hands, which might have been in some sense what they would do during baptism. Uh, A lot of times Christian baptism involves the laying on of hands as as a symbolic way of um, blessing somebody. Uh, The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment and God permitting, we will do so. We will go beyond these elementary truths. Verse 4. Verse 4 is one of the most sobering, threatening. Verse 4 is a threat. It's a serious warning. It's a warning to those who are on the verge of committing apostasy. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared and participated in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away, It is impossible to be brought back to repentance. For to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now, how can somebody, quote-unquote, re-crucify the Son of God? It's difficult to say precisely. But I wonder if this isn't what the author of Hebrews has in mind. Remember back Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday... All of Jerusalem goes out to receive Christ. And symbolically, that's a picture of all of Israel. All the Hebrews are going out to receive Christ as king. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the king. They receive him as their king. Good Friday, five days later, all of Israel symbolically says what? We have no king. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify crucify. They receive him, and then they reject him. I wonder if that's not what the author of Hebrews is saying. He says, you are on the verge of doing the very same thing. You're about to receive him, and then re-crucify him, because because that's what it means to to, to formally and completely renounce Jesus Christ. You're putting him to public shame again. You're you're reenacting Passion Week. Verse 7. An agricultural metaphor which interprets itself, really. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, that land receives the blessing of God. 
the land that produces thorns and thistles, that land is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. But the good news is he doesn't think (laughs) that they're necessarily going to go this way. He says in verse 9, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. And remember, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown him as you have helped his saints and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end. Persevere to the end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy and complacent. But to imitate, and this is a theme that gets picked up later in chapter 11, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a gut check passage. It is a fearful warning, and I am not going to pull any punches this morning. I'm going to preach it as as the sober, fearful warning that it is. Let's begin by considering an argument from church history. I've only been able to go to only uh, to one of Joe Gerber's Sunday school classes uh, as he's been teaching in church history on what we call the early church fathers, those, those seminal Christians who in the first, say, five centuries of the church completely revolutionized and shaped the, the Christian theology. Um, and by all accounts I've heard, it's an extremely good class. Isn't that true? It's, it's extremely well done. Kudos. <laughs> one of the fathers that I know Joe has talked about, because I was in on one of the, the Sundays that he was talking about, is, is the church father Tertullian. Tertullian lived late 2nd century, early 3rd century. And it was the work of Tertullian Tertullian was seminal in articulating and formulating what we know today to be the the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Tertullian was brilliant, and he was a gift to God's church. And he also believed a lot of things that you and I would probably disagree with. For instance, Tertullian, along with a a number of the early Christians, believed that in Christian baptism, Christian baptism effectively forgave all of your sins. When you were washed in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you underwent proper Christian baptism. All of the sins that you had committed previous to that point in your life were remitted, and you were clean. You had a clean slate up to your, your baptism. Now, early in Tertullian's writings, he believed that because God is merciful and gracious, God will forgive one serious sin post-baptismal, you know, after, after your baptism. So he believed that God would forgive you apostasy once. Now I'm talking about serious sin. He, God will forgive you one apostasy. God will forgive you one, one murder. God will forgive you one adultery. That's what he believed. But later on, at the beginning of the third century, he writes this, this tractate on Christian baptism, and he says, I think it was based on Hebrews 6. He reads Hebrews 6 and says, no, 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 I I was wrong. God will not forgive. He's not going to forgive any 
grave, mortal, we call mortal sin, at least some traditions do, one grave mortal sin. God will not forgive that after your baptism. It's one and done. And what he does is he argues and that what we ought to start doing as Christians is delaying baptism un- until later in life. <laughs> he makes the argument we should stop baptizing our infant children, which was the ubiquitous practice in the church then. We should stop baptizing our infant children because, I mean, that's a little dangerous. What happens if in a moment of passion during their teenage years, they do something really stupid and there's no, they're, they're doomed. They're doomed. It's just, we stop. Now, it's a little catch-22 because what happens if you delay baptism all the way until the end of your life and you end up dying suddenly before you've been baptized? You've missed out on, you know, so, okay, where am I going with this? I strongly disagree with Tertullian's equating baptism with salvation. But I, I do believe that Tertullian was onto something. Um, the plain reading of this passage, if we are reading Hebrews chapter 6 plainly and honestly, this passage does seem to speak of a point of no return. It does seem to say that there is such a thing as a line that you can cross from which there is no going back. And I think that I have, I've seen people who have done this. They have been in this, in this church. I, I can see their faces. People who I preached to for many, many years who nevertheless, uh, I mean, today they are so anti-God, so anti-Jesus, so anti-church and Christianity that, I mean, humanly speaking, I, it would take a miracle of God for them actually co- to come back to the faith. I mean, it would take a bona fide miracle. And you can think of people like that too, can't you? People are so hardened today that, look, nothing's impossible with God. I still hold out hope. I, I hold out hope to the very end. But humanly speaking, they're not coming back. Another reason why I think Tertullian is on to something here is because this is not the only place in the Bible this phenomena is discussed. It also is discussed, say, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, where, where John says that there is a sin unto death. There is a sin that leads to spiritual death. And he, he's, he talks about that sin over and against all the other sins. This is the sin unto death. Jesus talks about it in terms of a sin against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy, speaking against the Holy Spirit. And in the book of Leviticus, I don't know, I mean, most of us are not very familiar with Leviticus, but there is a sin in Leviticus, which there was no sacrificial offering that was provided for. Do you remember what that sin was? It was was called the high-handed intentional sin. There's no offering for that sin. You did that, and, and it was over. The point in each of these instances, and the point that I'm trying to draw from Tertullian, it seems to be that you can do something, you can make a mistake that you can never recover from. But then that leads to all kinds of questions, doesn't it? I mean, what about God's love? We just sang a minute ago about how his love will never fail. The Bible's all about the love of God so deep and wide, covering and forgiving murderers and adulterers, prostitutes, tax collectors, pretty much everybody. 
We're always, talk, always talking about the greatness of divine love. Why would this sin be any different than all of the other sins? Because it certainly seems to be. Several suggestions uh, have been made. Number, for, number one, some say that this sin is different because of its sheer blatant intentionality. Because of its pure premeditation. God says, God says, you should not do this. You must not do this. And a person hears, whatever the this is, they hear, I must not do that. I hear God saying, I know that I must not do this, but I'm going to do this. God says, no, 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 don't pull the trigger. Whatever you do, do not pull that trigger. By pulling the trigger, you are taking your own life. If you do this, this is spiritual suicide. You know, what happens to Judas after Judas hands Jesus over into the, to, the, uh, to the Roman officials, well, hands him over to the Jewish and say, Romans, what happens to Judas after he does that? He commits suicide. And the idea is that, that, that he's a picture of what's going on here. If you hand Jesus over, you're pulling the trigger. It's pure, premeditated self-murder, spiritual suicide. I've seen people do this, I think. Um, people... Th- People commit suicide, spiritual suicide, by per- pursuing whatever they think, think is going to make them happy. Even if they know that what God said is not that. But if that is what I think is going to make me happy. Now what's remarkable we know is a few people do survive suicide attempts. Probably people, I, no, not probably. People do s- survive spiritual suicide attempts. But that's rare. I think it's rare. Another suggestion. This one is getting a little closer to the truth. And it goes back to the context of the book of Hebrews. If you're here this morning, this is your first time at All Saints. This is not a great first sermon for you, for you to hear at All Saints. But we've been working through this letter to, the, to these Hebrews, Hebrew Christians. And as best we can reconstruct the, the, the setting, we, we think that these Christians are looking to return back to Judaism because it's a whole lot safer to be a Jew if you're living in Rome in 65 AD. Judaism was a legalized religion at that time. About five years after the writing of this letter, we know historically that Nero ends up burning down the city of Rome, blaming the Christians for that, and then he begins butchering Christians. He He feeds them to the wild dogs, feeds them to the lions, burns them on the stake. And what I suspect is during the writing of this letter, if you were a Christian, while you didn't know what exactly was going to happen in the near future, you you had a pretty bad foreboding, like something bad is going to happen. You could feel it in the air. It's probably what it felt like if you were a Jew in Germany before Nazism had really had entirely risen to the... But you know that there is something awful coming. And you're fearful. These Jewish Christians are afraid. And if I go back to Judaism, I'm likely going to be able to spare my life, to spare the lives of my kids. I get to, you know, I get to live... We get to live to see another day. It's, it would be really tempting. It's really tempting to trample. But consider the severity of what they were doing. At this point in in history, 
If you were to go back to Judaism, you were going back to the people who said that Jesus is a liar, blasphemer, and I'm glad he's dead. At this point in in church history, if you go back, these are the people who say that he got exactly what he deserved. I just wish that he would have hung there longer and suffered longer. He was a blasphemer. He got what he deserved. If if you're going back to... I'm not saying all Jews forever are, are, are murderers or anything like that, but if you go back to this group of people at this time, you are going back to, to the son of God's murderers, and you're kissing them on the cheek and laying yourself down at their feet. And I think what God is saying to, to them is, you do that, you re-crucify my son. I'm not going to forgive you. If you re-crucify the son of God, God's word just cuts through the temptation and the moral complexities that your, your Jewish Christian is thinking, well, maybe if I do it this way, maybe. No, no, God's, it's like a, a, a trumpet that just blasts through the fog of temptation. And he says, I won't forgive if you crucify my son again. Don't do it. It's kind of like rain that has I mean, that land that has received the rain of heaven. And, and if, you, if you come into my church and you receive all of these blessings that I enumerate in verses 4 through 6, but then you do nothing but produce thorn and thistles, that land is to be cursed and it will be, it will be burned. And we have an idea of what that imagery means. But why? why? Is it because God will not receive them back? Or is it because they, they don't want to come back to God? Or is it a little bit of both? Two men are stranded on a raft in the middle of the ocean. They have only one bottle of water between them. After several days of baking in the hot sun, by that point, they are both out of their minds, completely delirious, and absolutely convinced that the other guy has poisoned the water in the bottle The water in the bottle, it's poison. He's trying to kill me, says the paranoia. It's poison. By declaring the water of life to be poison, they've condemned themselves to die of thirst. Likewise, here's a surgeon. The surgeon offers to perform a life-saving surgery, open-heart surgery, emergency open-heart surgery because your arteries are clogged and you don't have much time left. But no, you say, no, he's not a doctor. He's a murderer in disguise. He's evil. As soon as you are convinced that he's not a doctor but a sadist, you will never consent to the operation. What I think is being said here in Hebrews chapter 6, God gives them, he gives them over to their unbelief. That's what also comes up in Romans chapter 1. God says, if you are going to act so faithlessly, then then I I will let you be entirely faithless. He He will actually allow people to believe the lies that they are telling themselves about him. He lets people genuinely and ardently believe all the junk arguments that are out there. Uh, he lets people believe that their atheism is true, that God isn't real. Believe that religion is what's wrong. That's the, what's wrong with the world today. Believe that Christianity is, is anti-science and anti-intellectual. Everybody in the church is a hypocrite. Christians 
are bigots, Jesus was a myth. Like all of the standard arguments, which most people use, which once you dig into them a little deeper, you find are not, are not nearly as strong as, as you might think they are. But, but God, nevertheless, God gives people over to their unbelief, and that's why they become hardened and never want to come back. They never return to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins because they think the waters of life are poison in a bottle. That explanation seems pretty consistent with what I've witnessed in my life. But at the same time, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's totally non-consistent too because I know that there are people, some of you in the room here, you have done things that in your past you would say, that should have shipwrecked my soul. I mean, some of us, even in your Christian past, when you were a professing believer, Christian, you, you did things, things that almost bordered on apostasy, things that were very premeditated and intentional. You knew God was saying, don't do this, and you did this. Some of you even drifted away for a long period of time, but, but you ended up coming back. Uh, how, why did you come back? And the people that I, I can list to you right now, why, and they didn't come back. Why do some of us come back after having crossed what seems to be the line, the point of no return, and then, then other of us just keep, I don't know. I really don't know. I think it has to do with the, the sheer mystery of God's grace. I think it has to do with John chapter 3 where it says the Holy Spirit, he's like the wind. He blows here and there, and you never can quite tell where he's going to blow? I don't know. The same, what I do know is that apostasy doesn't happen. It does not happen overnight. Nobody goes to bed on July the 28th as a person who loves Jesus Christ, and then for no apparent reason, the next morning on July the 29th, they wake up as an unbeliever who doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. Nobody just falls out of love with Christ. It doesn't I know that the, the modern view of love uh, maintains that love is this arbitrary emotion that falls upon us and leaves us without reason or rhyme, writes one author. So that men can claim simply to have fallen out of love with their wives for no specific reason whatsoever. They just woke up one morning and their love had fled, never to come home again. We all know this to be bogus. And if a man or woman says this, we know they're lying because love doesn't vanish. Love dies. We let love die. There's always a cause of death. We kill it. And in the same way, apostasy doesn't just happen. It's the result of of an extended period of time of letting your love for God die through compromise, disobedience, and unbelief that eventually you wake up on July the 29th and you're in denial of Jesus Christ. Dan Doriani is a professor of New Testament at Covenant Theological Seminary. Dan uses this analogy to describe the multifaceted people or the different ways that Christians stray from the faith according to Hebrews chapter 6. He says, think of a traffic illustration. Sometimes we stray away from God by virtue of ignorance. This would be like you fly into a a former British colony, maybe you fly for a weekend at Bermuda. You're driving along the road on the island, and all of a sudden, there's a car coming straight at me head on. And you realize, 
I'm on the wrong side of the road. I forgot. You got you to go to the left. I'm kind of ignorant of the, the local customs. That's one way to stray. Some Christians stray because of ignorance. Other Christians stray because of complacency. This happens when you get in the habit of going 42 in a 35-mile-an-hour zone or going 63 in a 55. And then one day you realize that you're not going 63 in a 55, which you've been doing all these years, but 68. Oh, no, 72. Ah, 74, because you were daydreaming or texting, talking on the phone. You didn't mean to. You were always just going 8 over, but now you can go 14 over, 16 over, 18 over. You've grown complacent. But then finally, some Christians stray, he says, they stray deliberately. Deliberately is when you run the red light. You, you, you look to the left, you look to the right. There aren't any cars any, anywhere near. I think I can make it. Boom. You, you deliberately run the red light. And I think all three of these are at work in apostasy. Uh, ignorance, complacency, compromise, deliberateness. Over a long period of time, that will kill love. This is a needful warning for American Christians especially because a lot of us started out our Christianity at a Billy Graham crusade or something like that. We, we started out our faith. Our first exposure to the faith was at a well-meaning but high-pressure environment where you, this night, if you feel near to God, you need to decide you know, on your eternal destiny Heaven or hell, it's, it's all about your decision right now in this moment. And if you do come down and pray the sinner's prayer, walk, respond to the altar call, then voila, congratulations, you, you're headed to heaven. You have your, your golden ticket to the chocolate factory. And it doesn't matter the way you live the whole rest of your life. You're in. So, I, I, but some of us, we were exposed to the faith that way, weren't we? Sober warnings such as this one, remind us that that is an extremely truncated view of things. I do appreciate many people will say this is a word of consolation, that if you're afraid that you committed the unpardonable sin and you feel miserable about it, you haven't. That's the general rule of thumb, right? Since you feel bad about it, you're clearly not guilty of it. Because only those who don't care less about it are the ones who are potentially guilty. I think that's probably, that's that's true. For those of you who are here today with very tender consciences, I don't want you to go home and and be worrying, oh, have I done this? Am I? No, if you, the people who have done this or are on the verge of doing this, they probably, they couldn't care less. But let's be warned. There. There are things that we so easily do that lead us down the road of spiritual jeopardy. If you dabble in internet pornography, if you keep doing that, if you keep running in a circle of friends who are always putting you in a compromising situation, if you are dating the wrong guy or the wrong girl, and if you fall in love with the wrong guy or one girl, or if there's, there's you know, sin knows no bounds. There's so many different ways that we can do it, but... But if you continue to, to play on the edge of the Grand Canyon, there's no grass there. I've been to the Grand Canyon. It's not safe. We should, we should be warned. Finally, I'm almost done. I know this is a really long sermon, but 
Finally, if you will, please look with me at verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6 detail what I believe are the great gifts of God to everybody who is part of a church. This is what he says about them. He says, uh, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened. A lot of the early Christians spoke about baptism, actually, as a way of enlightenment. Say, so how is it enlightenment? Well, at the very least, in baptism, you're admitted to a church, and ideally, you get discipled in a church. Your eyes are enlightened insofar as you begin to see all of life completely differently as a, a disciple of Jesus Christ, and that usually begins with our baptism. That's one, one characteristic. The second characteristic, uh, you are people who have tasted the heavenly gift. What do you think is the heavenly gift? It might be salvation, but the way that the early Christians talked about the heavenly gift is, well, uh, the Lord's Supper is, is the food of heaven. This is the heavenly gift that we have every Sunday. He says, those of you who have participated or shared in the Holy Spirit, I truly believe that when we come together on Sunday morning and we worship, and when we meet together in our small groups, we are sharing together in the, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He, like all of us, there's something going on. We are being touched by the Holy Spirit, at least I hope so, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. I'll put this very personally and sharply. If at any point in time in the rest of my life, I, Brad Cheney, commit apostasy and fall away from Jesus Christ, it will not be because I have not tasted of the word of God, that I have not tasted of the heavenly food, that I have not been, been uh, touched by the spirit of God. It will not be because God hasn't been good to me. I heard John Piper say something very similar. He says, over the next 10 or 20 years of my life, if I, John Piper, begin to lose interest in spiritual things and become more fascinated in making money, if I buy into the lie that a new wife would be exhilarating and that the church of Christ is a drag and that the incarnation is a myth and there's one life to live, only one life to live, so let's eat, drink, and be merry. If that happens, it won't be because God wasn't good to me. It'll be because I have... I have turned away from something magnificent, which is verses 4 through 6. No, I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. No. <laughs> but when you turn away, it's, you're not turning away from nothing. You're, you are turning away from the greatest gifts God can possibly give a human being in this life. Have you thought of it that way? It's true. Finally, back to Scorsese. What do you think? Did Father Rodriguez trample on the Fumi to save those three Christians from torture? Did he trample? He might have been the last priest in Japan. Will the last living priest in Japan, will he trample? I regret to inform you that Martin Scorsese bombed the film. The ending of the film is, is atrocious. It's why you always should read the book. <laughs> Instead of the movie, you could do both, but, but it doesn't begin to do justice to the way that Shizako Endo ends the story. Always read the, always read the book first. I'll simply say this. Um, God was not silent to Father Rodriguez in the end. 
And Father Rodriguez did not betray his Lord. May the same be said of us. Amen.